Hello. Hi, John. Berlin, man. John Roderick. It's been like seven years. Like I really got to get a better song for you. You know, I just also I'll just say that sometimes. I'll just be walking around. I'll go bums and bums and bum. How do you feel? I ain't got no So, how do you feel about that particular little hairpin in the career of of DL Roth? How do you feel about that? What is it? Stinky from the Heat? What's it called? Loco del Color? What's the name of it? Taco Pastor. Taco Pastor. Crazy from the Heat. Crazy Loco del Color. Uh huh. Uh, David Lee Roth uh, official website. How do I feel about it? How well, did I feel about it then, or how do I feel about it now? Well, well, oh goodness! Okay, I'm gonna close this tab. Um, well, here's what you had: you had you had the uh, you had the Van Halen, who had yes. like five really good albums. Well, you um, know, four really good albums. They had some good albums, and then uh, DLR left, and Sammy Hagar asked the musical question: Why can't this be love? So, right. So I don't remember exactly what happened. I think there was some bad blood with Edward. Sure. And, sure. Uh, and DLR, DL Roth goes off on his own and puts out Loco Del Calor. Hmm. And he, what were the hits? He had was it California Girls. Yep. And, well, he wished be. And, and just a gigolo slash I Got Nobody. Yeah. Yeah. Those were the big hits. I, I don't even think it was a. I don't even think it was a a full record, was it? Wasn't it like a big EP? Was it crazy from the heat? Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! No, wait, no. I I am, think, oh, eat them and smile. Eat them and smile came in 1986. Oh my goodness! You are so right. Okay, okay. Here we go. We got yeah, it's four like tracks. A 14 minute long record. Oh my goodness! 1406. Hmm. Yep. Ted, Ted Templeman yep. has his imprimatur on that one too, right? Um, and I mean, think about think about how many copies of that EP sold, right? Yeah, and think a- about every single person. Difficult... <laughs> every single person started a cover band. <laughs> Only a thousand people ever bought it. <laughs> think about that, and think about this is the thing I I've reflected on this before, which is that David Lee Roth did not write any songs mm-hmm. for this album, right? They're all covers. So how difficult would it have been for him to make a full-length album at this point? He could have just picked 10 uh, Tin Pan Alley songs <laughs> instead of four. Uh, he's got, he's got, in it. Okay, so he's got uh, uh, Edgar Winter, an Edgar Winter song, an Edgar Winter cover. You got a Louis Prima, right? Louis Prima cover. You got a Beach Boys mm-hmm. cover. You got a cover of a song I've never heard of by The Love and Spoonful. Four songs four songs now four. why why didn't he do uh why didn't he do like good morning little school girl 
and uh, dem bones, dem bones, dem dry bones. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, see, now, right? Okay, now Monster if I were nominating Mash. some coverage for David Lee Roth for DLR, the man himself, DL Roth, to do. Yeah, in 1984, released in 1985. I think Dem Bones, Dem Bones, Dem Dry Bones got to be high on the list. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> wow, <laughs> it's just you know, it's just a strange, it's a strange turn. Is all I'm saying. It feels like a, a rush to market strategy. <laughs> I think is the business term. Like you probably want to get something out, but look at the well, look at the I'm, personnel. You look at the personnel on this. He had Carl yeah, Wilson oh. and Christopher Cross in the studio. <laughs> Wow. Well, he had the power, right? Mm-hmm. This is before he uh, before he put together a, the band with Steve Vai. And let's see. You got Eat 'Em and Smile. You got Yankee Rose. But see, see, see what what I'm what I'm saying though yeah. is that if you look at the five great or let's say four great Van Halen albums with DLR, every one of them's got Ice Cream Man or you know, there's <laughs> always a break, tune on there coming up. <laughs> There's so much of that stuff that would fit right on Eat 'em and Smile or right. right on Crazy from the Heat. David was chomping at the bit. I think mm-hmm. this is one of those, you know, the way the way Lennon talks about McCartney, where he's like, oh, by the time I got to the end, mm-hmm. I just knew exactly what he was going to play at all times. It, Lennon was just he thought he thought uh, he thought McCartney was corny. Yeah, and I think that I think that Eddie Van Halen from the very beginning was like, this guy is such a cheese ball. David always wanted to put more accordion in the thing. <laughs> good morning, good morning. Eventually, he was like, "I, I gotta, I gotta do this myself. I gotta get out there and, and put on a show for people and have fun." He's a John Roderick, D.L. Roth is above all a showman, a showman in the business that is show. You know, yes. you cannot keep that man in a box. The answer to D.L.R. in a box is not a bigger box. Let that man out of his box. Because he's got to show, and he did. He right did. when that he California shooed. Girls, when that <laughs> when that uh, video came out, it was dun, 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 dun. it encapsulated the eighties. It really did. That was peak eighties. Hmm. DLR on the beach with all the and and you know and like shameless. It was so shameless. Check my math here, but it had a lot of girls in bikinis. Was that right? Girls in bikinis. There was a lot of fisheye lens shots. Mm. There was it was just like a costume parade. It was a it was like a day at Venice Beach. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There was a version of the eighties. Let's say a version of the eighties that that was the that was the peak moment of it. Yeah, it peak might be, moment might be of cocaine eighties. Peak mid eighties. I'm gonna peg to either that or you spin me round by dead or alive. Oh uh, well, see, yeah, sure. That was one of the first, well, excluding Bananarama, which we really haven't talked enough about. Excluding Bananarama, that's when the stock Aitken Waterman. Thing. I think that might have been their first, SAW's first big hit, was uh, You Spin right? Me Round. And then they kind of owned it for a couple years. Everything went bump, 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 bump. It was all octaves everywhere. Bump, 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 I listened to a, uh, yeah, I, I listened to that the other day. I listened to the single yeah. version, which I like, but I listened to an extended um, it starts out mostly instrumental. And you know, remember that thing when they do a remix, which is basically a long version where they would have part of the vocals and the vocals would be echoey and they call it a remix. Yeah. Aye, aye, yeah. Aye, aye, yeah. Aye. Yeah. But man, that is, that is a Swiss clock of sequencing. That's some nice ass sequence. Anyway, I'm taking you off your topic, but that was a pivot point 
in the mid '80s, I think was used to be around. But you might be right. You might be right about um, about uh, Loco del Calor. That uh, that that the break, the like the break in that, in uh, you spin me right round, where it, where it goes dun 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 That's very tough. It's fun to play, even on an acoustic guitar. You go like you know like. Uh, a e e e g c c or g d d. You do like a little walk down. Bum 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 bum. Right? Oh, wait, wait, no, it's an octave. It's an octave. It's an octave or a fifth. Bum bum bum. Boy, that's an octave. Anyway, it's super fun to do. But you do a walk down. It's basically the, it's basically a uh, wipeout. Right. It's why it's the wipeout walk down. <laughs> the wipeout walk down. <laughs> Gotta capture there's that. a uh, there's there's a there's a Zeppelin tune uh, that also does that. Um, yeah, there's what a pretty it, well known one with that exact same walk down in the same key, I believe. Pretty well known. Yeah, pretty well by, known. By a band Zeppelin called uh, Taurus, I believe. Well, who was the band they ripped off? Was it Taurus? Tarsus? Tarsus. Tarsus. It is early. Stairway rip off heaven. Never going to give you up. Do, 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 do. No, no, that I was SAW. That was SAW. You got uh, Kylie Minogue. Pump up the volume. Pump up the volume. No. Pump that beat. Maybe we should just, that was, maybe we should just vocalize nope. songs we like from the eighties. I feel and like that was I a know. low point. That was the beginning of the end for me. That high energy. High, that's exactly that's the genre. It's NRG. Yeah. yeah, that was for me. There were that was where I started to pop out of eighties pop. Oh, okay, pop because out because it was it was so. Um, and I'm not talking about you spin me round because that was still new wave. It felt like that was an exciting moment of new wave. Yeah, that was well. That was also it was with his persona and video and the sound. I mean, and that was such a new sound. That was. I mean, that did not sound like Shannon. That did, I'm trying to think of other no. bands of that type, but of that the high energy um, stuff. But uh, it really had its own sound. Well, he, he was, was like, such a weirdo. He was, if he was doing gender play too mm-hmm. at a time when it was like, what's happening here? It was very exciting. He made it Boy George look like, a, look like a lumberjack. I mean, that guy was really swinging for the fences. Mm-hmm. He's a lumberjack. Mm-hmm. He's okay. Um, <laughs> no, you're probably right. But then you slide into, you're sliding into 86, which in some ways is, if not a high water mark, it's a mark. But 1987, things are starting to get pretty rough. 87, 88, Rough. and 88, I feel like things really, 87 and 88, like under the surface of the water, the duck's feet are moving around, you're getting some Pixies action. But like, um, but man, a lot of bands released some of their poorest work in 1987, 88. I think of that era as being Bon Jovi dominated. Oh, um, yeah. Right, right, right. He on a steel horse, he and, rides. That was, yeah, 80, and that was, was 80, also, it was 88, I also think. Also, yeah. like, uh, NXS Kick. Mm-hmm. It was, which oh, I thought Sam. was a low point. It was, uh, it was Def Leppard's Adrenalize. Yeah. It was all these bands that, you know, that had, uh, that had started off kind of sounding like teenage ACDC and by the end had become just like comedic, uh, stadium rock. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. That I just couldn't, I couldn't, uh, I, I, I had to bail out of all of that. But it was also Peter Gabriel's so, uh, so was, was 86, right? Sledgehammer's 86, yeah, I think. Yeah. 
Okay, here we go. I don't want to go through this whole thing because it would take a year, but the list of Billboard Hot 100 number one singles of 1987. Now, admittedly, a- no, go to 88. 80, go to 88 because you're right. That was the that was dead dead time. 88. Okay. Oh, start with Faith by George Michael. That's a good song. All right. So good emotional. Song. I think better in retrospect. I got my mindset on you. Not a great song. Right. Mm-hmm. The way you make me feel, not Peak Jackson. Oh, need you tonight. That song bugged me. We, we, you, you and me, we go back and forth on the NXS, but I, I think the earlier stuff is probably a little better. I, I need you tonight. Well, NXS, I, bam, yeah. Bam. I, <laughs> this is my entire impersonation of NXS. <laughs> bam, bam. Oh, we get never gonna give you up. Never gonna yep. give you up. Uh, what you know is true. I tell you. Uh, Love your secret heart. I don't know that one. Uh, yeah, you do. What is that? I was standing. You were there. Hmm? Two worlds collided. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you will never tear us apart. Do, 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 do. Oh, Come on, that's a huge hit. Never tear us apart. I, wait, I, I, is that the pow? Who is that? <laughs> no, it's no. in excess. Oh, bam, bam. <laughs> No. <laughs> okay. Uh, man in the mirror. Ugh, God, get out of my dreams and get into my car. Declaims Billy mm-hmm. Ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stone. Well. The stone roses. When did when did stone roses come out? I'm gonna just call that eighty nine ninety. That was a year later. Eighty nine ninety. Oh shit, dog. Look at this. Okay, hang on. Oh, hang on. A couple more here. Let's see. Uh, wishing well. That was a pretty good song. Together forever. Oh. Uh, the flame, terrible song by Cheap Trick. Then you get. I um, actually, I actually was really into Terrence Trent Darby for that first. I don't know that first blast. Um, and then you know where did he go? Dude, September ten. That was a good ass right. song. That was a good right, ass fucking record. What, that's when that showed up. <sighs> Steve Winwood roll here, with it. Have you have you noticed this too? Now mm. I think I think what we're getting at here yes. is is the beginning <laughs> of what I this was the first generation gap that I strongly felt. Oh really? Like you feel yeah, you feel it, a little left behind, or like you walked away from it? You popped out. Well, yeah, not left behind by mm-hmm. any means, but like the the. When I was a freshman in high school, the seniors in high school had music that I identified as my music, right? The Even the guys that had graduated a couple of years before I went into high school, the music that they were listening to that was popular at the time, right. st- we still claimed as ours. New wave, punk rock, but also... But, like, n- Boston, but not like... Boston, I was going to say Foreigner. I mean, there was this, there was this, like, uh, this murder of bands... From that really, you know, you think of those, you know, if I say late 70s hard rock bands, there's like six bands we could all name that pretty much everybody liked. You know, everybody liked Foreigner, everybody liked Boston, almost everybody liked Everybody Sticks. had Back in Black. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, and then you get into the heavier stuff. But there was like Sticks. solid hard rock that was pretty unobjectionable to everybody up until like yep. the early 80s when Foreigner got synthesizers and stuff like that. But you could, But that you, was true all the way through. I mean, even into '86 when we were listening to Glenn Fry and I mean, <laughs> all politics of contraband. <laughs> all of that stuff came out of bands of the '70s. You could still make right. a connection to it. Yep. But between '86 when I graduated and '88, two years later, 
I still feel like I meet people in the world, and you want to think you graduated high school in 88. We are almost exactly the same generation. But I have I feel so much more in common with the class of 84. That is that's a really good point. Yes. 80, right? 84 was the end of the 70s in some ways. Yeah, and by the by the time I meet somebody who graduated in 88, almost all of their cu- cultural touchstones are different. They have different beginning points. They're not based in a Aerosmith economy. Yeah. They're based in a, you know, they they're they came out of uh, they came out of new wave and and pop metal in a totally different way, and so I'm 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 always feeling like somebody whose moment was, you know, their junior year, or whatever, was in the late '80s. I just can't, I don't have that. I I and I felt it even then, like what the hell is happening to you kids? Right, right, right. And they're getting you, into the video games. Know, that was the video games were really yeah. catching on around then too. Yeah, and I was 18 years old, and I already felt like, wow. And that was on the cusp. You're you're between. You're between two generations. That was why that Guns N' Roses record was so powerful because it felt like a throwback. It felt like felt very. It was it was really well crafted and felt really authentic. And I know we, we like to avoid that term on the show. It's when talking about music, but it felt like, no, this is the real deal. Like this is the shit, man. Well, because those songs were 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 written in a blues vernacular, they were blues scale songs, mm-hmm. and all metal at that time had transitioned to Mixolydian. You know, it had gone it had gone through this weird classical this this Ingve Malmsteen idea that classical music was what we were going to bring into metal. Gone from hard rock to difficult rock. Difficult rock, right? And just like uh, we're, we're scalloped fretboard rock. I just left rock. my own joke. That's so stupid. You're absolutely right, but also you had. You been... know what? Somebody's got to laugh at your jokes, Merlin. Why not what? you? Um, there. Here's the thing. So then after that, I don't want to do all of these, but here's your run through um, right. your speed run through 89. the end of the year. It includes "Don't Worry, Be Happy," "Love Bites" by Def Leppard, uh, the very interesting "Crazy Comeback" of Red Red One by UB40. A groovy kind oh, of love. The worst. The <laughs> worst ear. Um, uh, uh, oh. Co- it's on the radio. I leave the venue. Ready for this November? It gets pretty good. You get the Kokomo. Kokomo by the Beach Boys. You get Wild Wild West. With, the, with Rob Lowe on drums, right? There's Rob Lowe on drums. No, it's the father from the San Francisco baby show. John Stamos played Stamos. something. I think he played accordion drums. on that one. You get Wild Wild West, uh, Bad Medicine, Your Love is Like Bad Medicine by uh, Bonathan Jovi. You get um, Baby I Love Your Way slash Freebird Medley by Will to Power. Look Away by Chicago. And finally, you know it, buddy. Merry Christmas. Every Rose Has Its Thorn by Poison. Uh, there it is. There it is. And that's the it. End. Annis Horribilis. That is so bad. That is such a bad collection of songs. And you know, that should have been... That should have been peak us. I was 19, 18, 19. I should have been like, woo! Mm-hmm. And it was, at the time I knew it was garbage, at the time I was listening to the Steve Miller band because there was nothing else. It's going to buy me a Mercury. Let's see. Oh, Toy Soldiers. Now I'm into 89 by Marty. I, I could do this all day. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, me too, but I don't want to and and no. I don't want to validate that year by talking about it. No. 
Blame it was it such, on the rain. Such downtime, and and <clears throat> I was I I had ejected myself from from youth culture. I don't think I don't think people now can understand this. The the other thing that was happening. Youth then, culture killed your dog. <laughs> well, it was the twenty year anniversary of the year that the baby broomers crested, nineteen sixty eight, and there was this total retro 60s the 60s are going to make the 90s look like the to the 2010 it was you had was it 88 let's see no it might have been 89 when you had like the harmonic convergence coming remember that was going to be a big thing oh yeah harmonic convergence more like moronic <laughs> convergence <laughs> the uh, the bhagwan shri rajneesh mm. was out there bhagwanan you got waco <laughs> You got your Bogwan's Bogwanan. You got your Waco. No, Waco's Gover- a little later, but eighty. But that was no. That was a hippie year. That was, and I, again, I felt kind of mad because I'd been into the hippie stuff a little bit before that, so I thought it was a little bit played. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, but it was hippie. It was hippie music, but it was also. What year did the Doors movie come out? Oh, with what's his name, Val Kilmer, the Doors. Yeah, I'm gonna say 1990 is my guess. <clears throat> 1991. Uh, 91. Okay, so what was the right in there somewhere? Oh my god, Meg Ryan was in that. Oh my gosh! But yeah, but there was a movie, in, and this is before the the eighties are going to make the sixties look like the forty twos. Mm-hmm. There was a there was a Winona Ryder movie that had uh, Iron Man in it. Um. Oh, it's a transition from like Brat Pack to Love Bites. No, Love Bites vul- loves vulgar. Vulgar. What's what was her movie with the uh, Love Love actually, Stinks? Actually, Love Stinks. Love It was a Winona Ryder. It, but it was a period piece. It was set in 1968. It may have even been called 1968. Oh, yes. And it had like a lot of. It had a lot of. Those scenes where somebody's driving a Volkswagen bus and it and the soundtrack is Crosby, Stills and Nash and <laughs> you know they're no, running no, away from that's their parents. That you <laughs> <laughs> that's like Dude, the, what, the official what like, that shitty book, shitty sixty song, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who who likes canned heat? Who who comes home from work in the sixties and puts on fucking canned heat? I've never understood that. Well, that that was also the era of singles radio. Yeah. Everybody was buying forty fives then, so you didn't have to. I mean, there was there was AM radio, and all that great seventies music, like "Long Cool Woman" in a black dress. Like, who you know, nobody yeah. bought a Holly's album, but they bought Holly's singles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Movies nineteen sixty nine. Nineteen sixty nine came out in nineteen eighty. Nineteen sixty nine is going to make nineteen eighty eight look like the forty twos. That's right. <clears throat> you got Robert Downey Jr. Kiefer Kiefer. Keith or Sutherland, yeah. you got Bruce Dern. Oh, Marriott Hartley. She's a treat. Winona Ryder. Yep. Mm-hmm. You, you 1969, the movie. And so I so that was that moment where it was like, we are like I am 20 years old and I am celebrating the culture of 20 years ago. And everyone's wearing little round glasses and drawing peace signs on their army jackets. World party. World Party right, or World Julian Party. Lennon. Yes. And and there was like this, it was all 
uh, it was that feeling that that was the high water mark of the of the 20th century youth culture, and we don't have our own because punk rock had like had become the de facto youth culture of of a tiny fraction of youth, <laughs> and everyone else was just you know listening to Dead or Alive and sort of no scene around it. Right. But even the cult, even the cult was putting out. 60s music and rocking 60s can I, can I toss in um, Tears for Fears, Sowing the Seeds of Love? As a 60s retro? Don't you think? Sowing the Seeds of Love. It's, it's basically, I mean, I've heard them talk uh-huh. about this. It was very influenced. I watched something, a couple, this is really quick, a week or two ago, this amazing recent live performance by Tears for Fears, which are primarily, it's the two guys plus band people, and they sounded fucking great. They sounded so good. And I, I always liked that tune. I always, and it was very, but it was very emblematic of that new psychedelia, uh, or, you know what I mean, kind of updated psychedelia yeah. feeling. The Tears for Fears is an embarrassing moment for me. One of the, hmm. one of several Right, that you get that you encounter throughout life. When Tears for Fears was on the radio, I despised it. And partly it was, I think I was picking up that that retro psychedelic vibe without really maybe fully grokking where it was coming from. But the two guys had such frowny faces. Mm-hmm. They were just like so over serious and so like over emotive and just dramatic. Um, and it was very synth driven stuff. And I was, I just felt like opposed to it because there was a lot of catchy pop on the radio at the time. Yeah. And, and it was also a big period in our lives where your reaction to culture was as much about what you were opposed to. Talking here about probably like more songs from the big chair than the hurting. You're talking about like the shout era, right? Well, I mean, the whole... I, mean, I thought once the hurting you, was really good. I mean, you're right, but once I mean... Once you turn against a band, though, no, you I know. turn against, you know. And because I'd been a huge Flock of Seagulls fan, everybody else was uh, turned against them, but I didn't think you could deny those singles. Mm-mm. I thought that they were so strong that, you know, there wasn't any... You couldn't futz around with them. When Peter Parker but, goes to the uh, homecoming dance in the Spider-Man movie, he walks in there playing um, uh, Space, Age, Space Age Love Song. Great song. Mm-hmm. I mean... Uh, that's not a cultural reference point for me, but yes, I get that you saw a Spider-Man movie once. But you listen, the one that just came out and made 117 million dollars, and it's probably the best Marvel movie ever made. Yeah, that's the one I'm talking about. You're gonna want to see it. It's really oh, did good. They re- did they, they did reboot Spider-Man? Oh, thank goodness. No origin thank story. Goodness. There's no origin story in it. It goes straight to the meat, and he's played by an actual kid. It's really nice. Oh, that is that also there's nice. a nice scene with uh, Save It for Later, which is a nice song. That's a good song. You know, Save It For Later and Happy Dangerous Flagpole Sitter, same exact song. But they also, key, didn't, they, didn't they also cover Save It For Later? Well, they did because because I think somebody said, hey, your song is the same as that song. And then they covered it as a kind of like, wah, wah. I thought, hmm. And then those guys, the Save It For Later dudes, the the uh, the, the popster English UK. beat. Thank you. The beat. They became... Uh, big Harvey Danger fans, no and whenever, way. yeah, whenever the English beat was in town, they would <gasps> call Sean, and Sean would jump up with them and do "Save It for Later." And wow, I, I think, I think that's if they really were out, complicated. Whoa. That's a complicated anecdote. 
and then Harvey Danger would do a medley of the two songs. <laughs> but what got more complicated was English beat singer guy, Blondie. Mm-hmm. Blondie, we call him. According to Sean, he started calling him too much. Like, <laughs> hey, 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 Sean, you up? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Until Sean was like, "Hey, I, sorry, I can't hang out, man. I, you know, <laughs> I've got, uh, I've got other stuff that's going nice. on." That's nice. That's nice. That's nice to hear. Yeah, that's nice to hear. I thought, I Dave, thought so is too. it Dave Wakeling? <clears throat> Dave Wakeling. And the other guy was Ranking Roger. I remember Ranking Roger. Yep. yep. Because they were before the English beat UK. They were in. Uh, mm-hmm. They had that earlier band that was even uh, mm-hmm. that was like a different, no. bigger beat. Bigger beat. No, 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 Be- no. You're reversing it. You had General Public, and before General Public was the beat. Oh, oh, oh okay, okay. That's what it is. Bum, General Public. You know what a racist it's- I am when I only knew them from having their singles collection, what is Beat, which is a great singles collection. Um, I thought the black guy was the singer. How about that? How's that for racism? There it is. There it is. You're going to think so. Dave Wakeling. Oh, the, he looks, he looks good. He's got a good haircut. But back to, uh, back to Tears for Fears. Oh, I see, yeah. <clears throat> Later on, and I'm talking about 2002, mm-hmm. uh, my good friend, um, uh, the Mike Squires, <laughs> that we talk about periodically. <laughs> Mike had some remarks recently. It's, uh, you know, he's a, he's a problematic figure. Oh, did he have remarks recently? What did Mike Squires have to say? Oh, you can look it up. Oh, I can look from the internet. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mike Squires has got a lot to say because Mike is is too dumb to know that. He <laughs> oh no no cares. no! Stop stop! <laughs> no no no! It's going to be East Coast West Coast all over again. It has to stop. But here's here's what happened. I was at Mike's house in uh, in Portland, Oregon. I don't know why. I probably ran out of gas or something, and then he was the only guy I knew nearby that had a car. I was there, and you know, Mike has a incredible vinyl collection that he curates. And it is it is really formidable, this collection of vinyl. And That's he cool. cares. He cares for me. And he put on Tears for Fears, the hurting, mm-hmm. and he said, Hey, dummy, this is a great album. <laughs> and I said, Nah, nah. Right. I don't like them. And he said, Shut up and listen. Mm-hmm. And he played it, and it's undeniable. A classic pop album. They're really, really good songs, and the performance yeah. is very distinctive. The musicianship is very high, and and uh, as I listened to the record, I had to, uh, gradually their frowny faces, their dumb British frowny faces, went out of my head. Yeah, and was replaced by this, and you know, like what ended up being an incredible appreciation of them. So now, you know, it was a late in life. Uh, like uh, epiphany and now i feel like oh i should have liked them all along i like them now a lot i when their music comes on i'm always excited and it was because that big you know oaf mike squires right had to had to give me an education which i didn't like getting from him of all people oh it's kind of a double I, for you yeah I mean, you got, but you, you know served he's, he's given me he's served me a bunch of times that's why one of the reasons that 
Oh boy! One of the reasons history will record him. In a History's dingling. greatest dingling. Scritti Politti, another one. What's the, there's another band. What's the one I'm thinking of that got better every Scritti. album? They had like a Scritti Politti was good, but then there was the one that what was the band that like had an '80s hit that we all kind of go ha 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 '80s hit. But then they had like better album after better album in the late '80s and early '90s. I'm spacing mm-hmm. on it right now. Um, but you know, it's funny. It's like a sweep up, right? You get some innocent civilians get get swept up in the dragnet. And I think that's the case. I mean, we've all certainly written off certain songs or bands because you go, oh, it's that thing. And I think that I think that happened with, um, well, you know, it happened with uh, Tears for Fears, but also Songs from the Big Chair really got, the singles from that got really overplayed to where I would dread hearing the beginning of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Yeah, absolutely. Although there were singles from that era that got over, over, overplayed, that I never got tired of. So there was something to that. Everybody wants to rule the world. That I still have a trouble. I still have trouble listening to that song. It was just like jammed down my throat at the right. It was such a prom theme. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just like ugh, prom. Whereas I will listen to that Don Henley song about the about Central America, whatever mm. the fuck that was. Uh, all the, she wants the Greeks, to do is the Greeks dance. don't want no freaks. Oh, sure. Right, 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 right. All she wants to do is dance. Mm-hmm. I uh, listen to that all day. And that was on the radio constantly. And that is a by all you know, by all standards, pretty bad. But I when that comes on, I'm like, yeah, all right, I'll take it. Can I toss out a uh, thought technology in your direction? I, I don't I don't want or need an answer now, but it's something I, I've just been thinking about in the back of my mind for a while, especially since we've done this show and talked so much about cocaine in music. Um, <clears throat> you don't have to answer this now, but I wonder if you were to cast your mind back over the years without knowing specifics necessarily, do you th- how much do you think you would be able to go back and identify what songs are fairly legitimate zeitgeist hits, which songs got pretty puffed up because of the way songs were recorded before SoundScan? Would you be able to identify which songs are, were so improbably popular because of Payola or similar? Do you think you could do that? Would you be able to go back and go, oh, that's why, that's why Starship was so popular? In, improbable because of cocaine, you're saying? Well, I mean, on the one hand, okay, so I'm trying to get at these these three axes. Where, like, on the one hand, there's, like, you take a song like, what? Sugar Sugar by the Archies. Like, that's a legitimately okay. catchy pop song. And you can understand why yep. that would be a really popular song. Um, yes. There are others where, I mean, and this is a story that's been told many times, when they flipped the switch to sound scan, a lot of stuff changed. Because right. I'm, I'm not telling you this. I'm telling anybody in our audience, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but basically it used to be like pretty much reporting and self-reporting. There was a number of records shipped, and then they would call around, and you would call the record store. Frequently, the record store would say, oh, yeah, you know what's popular? Uh, this one album we have way too many copies of and need to move, right? <laughs> right. So there would be this, on the second level, you got the dicey recording, and the sound scan basically brought in this idea of like, okay, here's the reports on what people actually bought with money in a record store this week, which was revolutionary, because... What do we discover? Hey, people like hip-hop and people like country. And country owned the charts for years after that, once they changed the right. way it was the codex measured everything. And then, right, and hip-hop, hip-hop too, right? Hip-hop took over from there. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and like, I think it probably helped a lot to realize, wow, this stuff actually is really selling very well. 
and it's getting at that point it was of course getting a little poppier. But I mean, I wonder. I just sometimes wonder, like you know, this is a little bit, little bit Alex Jones conspiracy theory stuff here. But like, I wonder, like if with that particular lens, if you think you could go back and go like, oh, that explains why we heard so much. Like Def Leppard, I don't like Def Leppard. I, you know, I'm sorry, I don't like post photograph Def Leppard so much. But I understand why they're popular. It was like you know. It was Poppy, you know, uh, that one guy, uh, Shania Twain's ex, you know, made yeah, some, that guy, that guy <clears throat> made some pop. You know what I'm saying? Though? Do you think you could go back? Would you be able to eyeball it and know which ones were pretty much straight up? Like, here's some cocaine play this album. I feel I feel like the other the other thing in there is that, again, because it was hard to know whose culture we will we were dealing with at that time, because the baby boomers. Like, do you remember the TV show 30-something? Mm-hmm. Right? The the baby boomers were in their mid-30s, which now we think of because you and I are in our 40s mm-hmm. or, you know, around our 40s. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, we look at 34-year-olds and say, I mean, 34, you're just, like, getting started. You're just a child. You're only just getting normal right now. Come on, 34, like, finally, you're kicking into gear, right? When you're 29, you think you know anything. But by 34, you're like, okay. Yeah. And at the time, right, we were teenagers. 34-year-olds seemed like they were, you know, they, like, might as well give up. <laughs> I mean, you're already, you've already transitioned into irrelevant adulthood. Right. But that was the baby boomers then, and they were still... They were so much larger a generation than we were that they were still shoving, heard it through the grapevine down our throats. Right, and and they were really, still they were they, still a, like a, a predominant uh, market force. Well, and they were the most self congratulatory generation of all time, and the most like self you know just like soaking in their own their own what turns out to be fairly recent past, and so. What you have is uh, what you have is Jefferson Airplane turning into Jefferson Starship, who actually had a couple of pretty good hits in the late seventies. Oh, sounds gosh, like, yes. You know, pretty good rock songs, <clears throat> and then they switch over to Jefferson, or they switch over to Starship, right? And they get two or three, two, I think, just gimme hits where it's like they've earned it somehow they are grace, still grace around jones in the in that oral history of we built the city grace jones had basically said like i want to make some money like i want to re- i want to yeah. be able to retire I, I whatever it takes i would like a giant giant hit please and thank you and so and what they had then was the pre-sound scan they had the goodwill and the relationships with the music business people who again were all like pre forty years old, and they could just say, "Here's our new record, make it a hit," and their A and R, and their then the president of the record company had probably made his bones to uh, Jefferson Airplane, and it was and you know when you look at that '80s Heart record, uh, where Heart was like incredible band throughout the '70s, They're and then so in, good. In the 80s, it was just like, what are you doing? Stop, please don't do that. And I love those girls. And I, I, I know, you know, I'm really good friends with one of the women that that co-wrote some of their songs, um, who's a Seattle uh, 
the luminary and and Grammy winning artist and Linda, what's her like, name? One of my favorite. No, 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 no. Uh, uh, not not Linda. What's her name? Okay. Uh, she didn't write. She didn't co-write like the the big seventies hits, but she she was a she was a friend and a co-writer with them. Because they're they're based in uh, Seattle, right? The time. They, they come, they come yeah, out of yeah, Seattle. Seattle yeah, band. And you know, I adore them. But that but during the era that those 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 mid eighties tunes. You're talking about with, like a they, these you know, like a these dreams. Yeah, it was just like a knife in my heart. Yeah. Uh, uh, no pun intended. Mm. And then you get then you get all the members of the Eagles and all the members of Genesis and all the members of you know and you get the Rolling Stones solo records and it was just like payday for all these people that had that had made you know made their epaulets <laughs> throughout the seventies and they were still in charge of the culture. There wasn't any. <laughs> there were no upstarts. Right. Um, and punk rock was kept out for the most part. I mean, New Wave was was gathered together and and made into and, and, and like almost immediately defanged and turned into uh, bubblegum music. But that's what I account for that. And I think cocaine is accessory to it because that whole generation also was was, you know, like had the incredible bad cocaine judgment. I mean, think about the <laughs> think think about the Eric Clapton hits of the eighties. It's in the way like, that you <laughs> use it. Comes and it goes. And then that weird eighties blues revival with BB King suddenly being a huge star and Robert Cray and all oh, this stuff. Of course, you got the you got the Stevie Ray Vaughan circa eighty four eighty five. Yeah. And Stevie Ray is just—he's just playing Texas Hendrix. Those are good albums. I mean, they're killer albums. Yeah, killer blues rock but albums. You're right, but you're right. And ZZ Top, you got your your buddies in ZZ Top, kind of. Uh, well, I, we can't we can't talk shit about Southern rock. Oh no, no, I'm I'm not talking shit about any of these people in that case. But no, you're right. But like, yeah, uh, Clapton had the he did that new version, the slow version of After Midnight. He mm-hmm. did what was his other big stuff? You're right, though. Yeah, you're right. You're right, though. Everybody, I, I, everybody was not cashing in is the wrong word because it doesn't totally capture it. It was more like it was like some credibility bond had matured, and they were part. Every, like lots of people were cashing in bits of their credibility bond at that point. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, absolutely. And one of the one of the ones that I would make an exception for is "Permanent Vacation" by Aerosmith, which was Aerosmith's. Comeback oh. record oh, right, right, post right. Run DMC, mm-hmm. like Run DMC pulled Aerosmith out of the trash bin of history. What an amazing, what an amazing, how did this ever happen story? When you really think about it, well, yeah, and it just it, and I Run DMC gave us such an education in the early days uh, in history of hip hop by yeah. doing that. Just like this is how we did it. We took these records that had these cool breaks, like oh no 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 no, no and we just looped them. And wrapped over them, so that's how it started. So anyway, thanks a lot. We're gonna give this little like we're gonna throw this bone to Aerosmith, who have been. I mean, there's a there's a great story in that Aerosmith autobiography of Joey Wanaker or whatever, mm-hmm. where he's driving his Ferrari on the highway on like you know Interstate uh, 95 or something like that, and um, and he's just like so drugged out. He's not paying attention, and a and a semi truck stops 
on the highway in front of him, and he just drives the Ferrari right up underneath the right up underneath the semi. I guess oh he has time. To, has time to duck. And there was some scene in the in the recording studio with those guys where where somebody was shooting a crossbow. Like in the studio, I mean, those guys should have, there's not a single member of Aerosmith that should be alive. Mm -mm. And then they came out with that, with permanent vacation, which although it features the garbage track, dudes look, dude looks like a lady. Mm -hmm. uh, It was, it was a killer record. It had killer tunes on it. Is that, is that also like the beginning of the Alicia Silverstone um, videos era? That came uh, that came later. Permanent but, you know, vacation. That, uh, permanent vacation was the was the tour that Guns N' Roses opened for Aerosmith. Really, I think also didn't didn't that uh, Linda what's her name write some of those for Permanent Vacation? I think that was her uh, jam too. Uh, oh come on, is that right? Linda what's her name? It's a non blonde lady, right? Didn't she write? No, that has that has to be later. Mm. For right. non blonde came later. Uh, okay, so you got hearts think, done time. Dude looks like a lady. Ragdoll. Ragdoll. <laughs> yeah, see, that's a good song. That's a good, oh, dude, that's a good song. 1989, you got Pump. And oh, pump look at that. It looks like the truck's having intercourse. Look at that. Yeah. Loving it. Yeah. I love beta. And I Danny's was in Europe when Pump came out. And I'd been a permanent vacation fan. I remember walking down the streets of some little town, and there was a record store, and prominently featured in the window was the record cover of pump their new album which they had raced out you know uh pretty pretty quickly after permanent vacation and i felt that weird feeling of like a weird feeling you used to get in europe when you would see something american and feel a kinship with it immediately because Mm -hmm. you know europe europeans still had mostly positive feelings about america yeah. And there would be something in the window of a shop that was like, the new record from American band, Aerosmith. And I was like, that's right. That's right. How you like How you like us now, Frenchies? Mm-hmm. Yeah, listening to Aerosmith, I bet. Hmm. No, I agree. <laughs> Sorry. I'm looking at pictures <laughs> of Aerosmith and Run DMC. I'm a little bit distracted. <laughs> that was a very, very uh, strange time. So I don't know. I'm not saying I could pick it out. But you know, it's just—it's another data point. Is all I'm saying. It's a very confusing time, and I, I think we might be too close to it mm-hmm. to to properly analyze it because every time you think you've got the '80s by by the nose, mm-hmm. then you know, then somebody throws out some new thing where it's like, oh, well, what do you have to say about Metallica? Mm-hmm. And then you're like, ah, oh, fuck, what Metallica? How does that? Where does that fit into anything? That yeah. first, the first two, you know, like ride the lightning. Right. How do you how do you account for that? So it's um, yeah, it's it's a little bit of a what was that? What was it? What was what was that band? I'm trying to remember the band, the very late '80s band, where the singer was so cokey, just frenetic, high energy, dancey music, and the singer had like colored dreads that were he was a white guy colored dreads piled up on top of his head and he was dancing around just flailing waving his arms it was the beginning of that era where music videos happened on a completely white background oh like it's like uh, in the but like <clears throat> the kind of music that would become like yeah unbelievable like would become that kind of music yeah that stuff or pre-delight mm. uh like dance music but but done as though it's rock 
Uh, It'll come to you. Never... It's not Jamiroquai. That's later on. No, that's later on. Big Hat music. There, there was that <laughs> music there was from that... the Big Hat. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the? There was that video of a band. I maybe they even had two hits, or he had two hits. It was a guy that wore his hat down over his face, and you could never see his face because he had his hat down over his eyes. It was the type of thing, and and the the cover of his record was just the bottom of his tennis shoes, and he, you could kind of see him in the background. Boy, I'm missing. A, I missed that, a lot of this stuff. It really appeals to the English, like an English mm. pop music fan. The the small device of like this guy wears his hat down over his eyes, and it's like he's the hit of the summer, mm-hmm. and you oh, want, yeah, you know, right, 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 just like. How does the British pop market like understand itself? How can you look yourself in the selves in the eye? What was the band uh, with the chainsaw? <laughs> what was that? Remember that the bit with the chainsaw? The band with the ch- <laughs> the, oh, band, yeah. the band where the guy would play chainsaws. <laughs> <laughs> he would do like a little fifth bend with a chainsaw. Mm-hmm. What was that? What was that band? Let's ask Google. <laughs> band with chain. Saw. Don't overthink now, it. My, I, I, I've, I've, uh, I've done a little... Jackal. Oh, Jackal. <laughs> J-A-C-K-Y-L. Jackal. You, where you wonder, are they Christian? Ah, oh, yes. Uh, the, uh, this, the, the, uh, my friend here in Seattle who co-wrote uh, Heart Songs did not write the, uh, the early 70s ones, but did, I'm now researching, did co-write Straight On. No, Coming really? straight on for you. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Even it up. These are killer, killer late 70s uh, heart tunes, right? You want to think it's all Barracuda, but then you, like, heart kept it coming. Yeah. And then Dog and Butterfly, which was a song that that Ken Stringfellow and I covered on the uh, Ken Stringfellow tour where the Long Winters were his backing band. Oh, I was was at that. Yeah. So I met Scott Miller that night. I don't know if I ever mentioned that to you. You met Scott Miller that night? <clears throat> I probably never mentioned it to you. Dog yeah. and butterfly. Right? Yeah. Right? So yeah. so there were there were several phases of heart. The several phases of heart. But oh, the eighties heart. And then they you know, then heart brought it back, of course, hmm. uh by by the grunge era. Like they I think I think Hart saw themselves or they saw grunge in themselves, not least because Cameron Crow mm-hmm. made the made the Nancy Wilson like crossover. But yeah, so she was know, doing soundtracks and songs for his films a lot, right? That is a thing. That is a thing. That is a thing. Yeah, no, I'm not criticizing, I'm just saying. No, no, no. I, if I could do uh, soundtracks for Cameron Crowe films, I would. Mm-hmm. I heard, I heard uh, that, and you know, when you think about it, like Ann Wilson was 30 years old in 1990. Hmm. What? Is that right? No, she's got to be older than that. Oh, she's 40 years old. 40 years old. But oh. still. Yeah. I mean, 40 seems young now. She, she's a good deal older than uh, Cameron, right? Well, that, that I was talking about Anne. I'm oh, Nancy sorry, now I'm lost. Than Anne. Uh, Keep looking what, at these pictures what, of Mary Sarah Smith and Rendell. I know, we're both looking at the internet, which makes for a great podcast. What, uh, I heard through the grapevine mm-hmm. that Cameron Crowe was a fan of The Long Winter. Oh, I feel like you might have mentioned this. You were waiting for a call for a long time, weren't you? Yeah, this is one of these grapevine situations where you're mm-hmm. like, how do I verify that? Mm-hmm. Right? Who do I call to say, "Hey, 
Uh, I hear uh, you're a fan of the band. <laughs> Uh, uh, I'm also a fan of uh, you, a mm-hmm. uh, big big movie director <laughs> big, whose big movies fan. I like. Big fan, big fan, big fan. <laughs> All the great All the shows. Great shows. <laughs> um, uh, Joel, and Joel, Joel McHale, Joel McHale. <laughs> yeah, Joel McHale. He's a yeah. You like you know him. Uh, like one time, uh, one time we played in New York City and. Um, and after the show, uh, somebody said, oh, A.C. Newman was here. I was like, A.C. Newman was at a long winter show? Oh, yeah, yeah, A.C. Newman's a great, you know, big fan of the band. Big fan. And so then I'm like, oh, shit, A.C. Newman's a big fan of the band. Yeah. And so that's the a, next that's, that's time I deal. saw him. That, that, that's a big deal. That's I mean, a big deal. Now, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, yeah. when when you're like, you know, it's like a Scott Miller type situation. Like when there's somebody who's like, you're special, like, you know, I don't be creepy about it, but like, you know, Zumpano... And new pornographers yeah. were like, man, that was that was my jam. Yeah, sure. I mean, he's one of the great pop songwriters of our yeah, generation. But also, and- he's got that kind of like, uh, at least n- maybe less so now that you know they've kind of the people know them and stuff. But like, or like Ted Leo for for that matter, where it's stuff where you're like, no, but like that's my special secret band, and like to even the inkling that they might even know who you are, it's such a big deal. That's so exciting. Well, and so every time I would see him <clears throat> at like festivals or something like that, I would kind of roll up on him. Like, hey, <laughs> and, what's up? And he is not a, he's not a roll up kind of guy. <laughs> yeah. What's up, AC? How's it going, Carl? You hey, know, Carl, I, I, I know you're, that's why I, I know your real like, name. Going through changes. Ruffle his hair. Like, ruffle, ruffle, ruffle. What's up? What's up, little guy? And he was oh, like a very introverted guy he's very, or whatever. Very Super, he, you know, he'd always have a super smile on his face, but I'd be like, remember me, guy from the Long Winters, that Bums you saw Bums me at <laughs> time that you were at our show. You were at our show. Yeah. And he was like, okay. Yeah, he was always really friendly, and we had we used to have fun on the internet together. But, you know, but I definitely, like, feel like I kind of <laughs> was so glad that he was at that show. What an that awkward I was question, John. And there should be a way to ask, like, you know, and this would have gotten you past so many, so many, both of us gotten us past so many all the great shows moments. There should be some kind of a code word where you just go, am I wrong? Do, do, do you have any idea who I am? Like, <laughs> yeah. this is going to be really yeah. awkward for, for, for six minutes to 14 years if we don't get this settled. Well, this was always my thing with Doug Marsh. I would roll up on him at every single event. And Doug Marsh is as introverted as a fucking clam. <laughs> is he like, really? I didn't know that. It, oh, yeah. He, op- he opens his show a little bit and you're like, hello. And he squirts salt water on him and <laughs> slams shut. <laughs> and every time I'd see him, I'd go up and I'd be like, hi, it's me again, John Roderick. And uh, love your band. Love your stuff. And he would just be like, squirt, slam. <laughs> <laughs> He'd give you the clam slam. <laughs> Yeah, it was slam slam, and after Built a while, a I was like, "All right, I'm not even going to try." Mm. Like, that's, you know, if I'm standing next to him at a buffet backstage somewhere, and he takes a strawberry, maybe I'll take a strawberry, but I'm not going to say I'm not going to be like, "Hey, look at us, two strawberry loving guys." <laughs> We're like, the strawberry boys. <laughs> forget it, right? <laughs> strawberry boys. We should do a record together. But this camera. The Cameron Crowe thing, I actually went to my people, various people, publicist, uh, uh, agent, you know, and I was like, hey, the word on the street, and I cannot tell you where this word came from. At the time, I probably could have, but now I have no, no recollection. But 
Cameron Crowe is a fan of The Long Winter, so you guys do your job and figure out how to get Cameron Crowe to do something where he loves me publicly. And, you know, my people were just like, huh, what? Yeah. I don't, you know, we don't have his phone number. And it's really a thing in that situation. We don't really have a workflow for this particular kind of thing. Yeah, just like, I'll call his people. Um, Hey, hi, this is Joe Publicist. Uh, They're in the same same situation. (laughs) Do you, can you, is there a way you can find out from Cameron if he's ever heard of John Roderick? Just don't. Don't make a big deal out of it. Yeah. Do you like me? Yes or no? Check one. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, you know, the uh, it still is possible that one day he'll make one of those classic Cameron Crowe films and there'll be a long winter song in it. And I'll be like, validated. Mm-hmm. Life validation. <clears throat> the, um, the song Lumberjack was re- released by Jackal, J-A-C-K-Y-L in 1991. Here's some of the lyrics. I was born in the backwoods of a two-bit nowhere town, fathered up some rock and roll baby so your mothers could boogie down. I ain't whistling Dixie. No, I'm a rebel with a groove. All around the world, they go round and round when they dig on my new stainless steel sound. Wait a minute. Was that a rat reference? Was that a little, like, tap a little rat reference there? They go round and round. I'm a lumberjack, baby. I'm a lumberjack, baby. I'm going to cut you down to size. I'm a lumberjack, baby. And you're the one that gets my prize. When you hear my motor running, you know I surely be copping a rise. So I'm going to crank it up and cut it down. No. Yeah. None, none of that. I have an interesting story about that. The jackals, the lumberjack? A little bit, yeah. Hmm. Which is, I was, so I took my daughter to a choir class, uh, which is like little girl, little girl choir. Apparently at the level of choir, uh, the genders are really separated still because huh. there is girl choir and I have no idea whether there is whether there is boy choir because I have a little girl and you are not given access to boy choir and there are no boys at all at girl choir. Okay. Not only no little boys, but also there are no boys in the form of adult pr- peoples waiting in the hall even. It's like a very mom-daughter Kind of it's like culture, some kind of halal situation. They got a whole separate building. If there is a boy choir, it ain't in here. I don't know where they are, and I don't know where their concerts are. I have no idea whether they even exist. Okay, got it. But I said, uh, you know, I said I have a little girl. I want her to go to choir, obviously, for obvious reasons. I went to choir, and choir is important. And so, uh, so I'm the dad at choir who's standing in the hall listening to them you know, sing the ABC song because they're little girls and they, you know, that not a single one of them can carry a tune. Uh, and so I'm out in the hall and I'm talking to the other moms and we're, you know, talking mom stuff. Mm-hmm. And the choir, the little girl choir that's happening is happening in one of what you would describe as Seattle's more affluent yet still downtown neighborhoods okay it's not one of the affluent neighborhoods where people have moved out to the suburbs and have just abandoned all hope it's the downtown neighborhood where people are buying 1902 houses with eight bedrooms in them and god knows what doing what with them right there are two two bedrooms that are just full of junky kids toys because nobody 
needs an eight bedroom house. You get but a gift, gift wrapping room. You get a mud room. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. This is my office, and that's Daddy's office. And never come into my office. You can come into my type. office, but not my den. Right. <laughs> exactly. Don't go into Daddy's library. And it's because one or both of them work at either Microsoft or Amazon, maybe Starbucks, and they just have more money than they know what to do with. And they, but they want to retain their downtownness, so they buy a house in town. Anyway, so I'm talking, and there are a lot of people like that that meet that criteria at the playground that's around my daughter's school because the 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 school and the neighborhood. Uh, where my daughter's school is, it either the people that live there are either University of Washington professors, and it's the class, it's the traditional neighborhood of that, uh, or people that that have a very short commute to the Microsoft campus, but still live in town. Anyway, so I'm talking to the moms, and uh, one of them says, you know, one of them kind of has this uh, like East Coast accent. And we get talking, and she's like, well, yeah, you know, I moved out here, uh, you know, sort of in the 90s, and, uh, you know, and now we live in this big house, and I kind of, you know, got this little girl, and mom, I'm momming it up, and I'm like, I'm momming it up, too. And I was here in the early 90s, like, did you move here for grunge? And she said, grunge? Ugh. I hated grunge. And I was like, you hated grunge. You and I are the same age ish. Mm -hmm. And you were in Seattle in 1991. What the hell were you doing here? Mm -hmm. We didn't allow 22 year olds to come here who hated grunge. Why would you come here? And she, her face lit up and she said, I was, I'm from Philly. And I was part of the New Jersey hair metal scene of the late 80s. And I was like, say what? And I pulled up a like a, a church pew. <laughs> and I was like, Continue. I, sat, I sat down. And, you know, and she is not rocking any of that now. She's rocking uh-huh. like, she's rocking full L- on Lululemon. You got, you got some Lululemon yeah, yeah, rolling? Yeah. Like hellified rich mom thing and she but all of a sudden her face is transformed and she was like you know like i was a high school dropout from my inner city philly neighborhood and we would go over to to trenton and then eventually like i hooked up with the guys in warrant or whatever i think it was like she listed all these bands and i had, i recognized them all but and it, it was suddenly like occurred to you that, that it suddenly occurred to you that these bands sold millions of albums and probably there were hundreds of people doing what she did oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah and but all of a sudden i'm looking at her and i'm just like it's one of those things where you look at a you look at kind of a an uh, holographic overlay of some historic you look at the thing and then you look at the holographic overlay of it and you're like holy shit that's what before they tore all the buildings down and i see her with hair this poodle hair that's like foot and a half high and spandex and like hanging out with these these guys with the pointy guitars and i was like (laughs) jesus christ I need to know all about this. Yes. And she said, I, you know, I was part of that scene and we were hardcore <laughs> she pull, rock and roll. She pulls out time. a cigarette. Ah, uh, Warrant. That's a name I haven't heard in a yeah. long time. <laughs> right. And all of a sudden her like the her heels get spikier and she she's <laughs> the guitar's get longer. 
and she's smoking a moor. And uh-huh. we're we're talking about the time, you know, that uh, we're we're talking about like Bon Jovi era, but just slightly post Bon Jovi's big fame when everybody in New Jersey was a was a poodle poodle metal guy. Mm-hmm. And she says we lived. We lived this incredible life. It was a fantastic moment in in history from 85 to 90. And I was tending bar and I, you know, I didn't even, I hadn't even graduated from high school and we were playing metal and we were partying and then grunge. Uh Oh, I was, was like, wait, 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 wait. This is where my story picks up. Yeah. Shush, 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 shush. Let me make this connection. Let me feel this. Let me feel this moment. Let me feel your anger and frustration because I've only read about this in magazines. You were there and had this was not L.A. Sunset Strip. This was the other one, the the Stone Pony, in fucking like like Sewer Kill, New Jersey. <laughs> right and. She said, "I realized that my life was a what had was like a dead end, and I went on a road trip to Princeton, and you know met somebody in a record store, and I was like, how do you how do you guys how what does one have to do in life to live in a place with trees?" And the person at Princeton was like, "Well, you go to college, and then you can live where there are trees." And she was like, I had never seen a tree, let alone a bunch of trees all together where it blocked the sun and was shady and cool. And she said she had this incredible moment where she where she said, I'm going to go to college. And she did. And she moved to Washington with her already feeling like she was too grown up for for rock and roll. Wow. And like went to university, became a computer person, worked in computers, retired, like met her husband who had, you know, had gone to uh, Cambridge or whatever and had 25 degrees in computer science. And now they live in this beautiful home. And her story was one of these stories that was just going to walk past me on 15th Avenue. I was going to be up there looking for looking for a shade grown uh, coffee beverage that had been cold brewed mm-hmm. somewhere and she was going to be walking by with some uh, bag of organic things on her way somewhere else and we would just be two ships passing in the night and I would see her and just be like oh what's up you know rich mom from the neighborhood and she would say like she would pass me and not even notice me because I just because uh, I look like somebody that's delivering things and yet here it was like history in the making so I went over to her house and she pulled out her photo album. You're kidding. And had Did all she invite these you? Sna- no, no. I, I went over and peered at the window. It's me, from John. Bond. Hi, remember me from Girls Choir? I just big, wanted to see your living room. Big fan. You've got really great furniture. I like your hair like that. No, she was like, come over and see my shit. And so she pulls out this photo album, and it's like, She's laying across the hood of a Camaro. Oh god. And there are and and Warren D. Cucurillo or whatever standing there twirling drumsticks. <laughs> and you're just like, what am I looking at? 
this is this is something that I never I never thought that I would I never thought that I would be like so close to in some ways what I regard as the enemy. And so she right? she's like, got a daughter approximately your daughter's age. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, <clears throat> right? And she's she has like that this is all these these photo albums are like in the attic. This is her past that that she never talks about, never gets to talk about, both because I don't think anybody in her circles are interested, and it's just not relevant. It's not relevant to what she's doing now. But I, you know, as soon as I dragged that church pew over <laughs> and was like, I sat down and I was like, you tell me right now everything. And she was like, wow, really? And the more she talked, the more I was like, yes, more, more, more. Tell me everything. Tell me about your culture. Tell me about your way. And, you know, the streets of Philadelphia, like, this is all just stuff that exists in a, in a mythological context to me. Well, it's like, it's almost like something like Quadrophenia, or I'm thinking of, like, that Twisted Sister documentary, which is really surprisingly good. And, like, you realize there's this entire, like, you know, just because you haven't thought about it or it's not your thing, like, one may not realize there's this, this, there was an incredibly rich and nuanced and, like, potentially very subtle subculture going around about this thing. Yeah. Well, heavy metal parking lot is what it is, right? <laughs> she was heavy metal parking lot, and we watched that film. Oh my god! As though it was a as though it was a uh, a message beamed from outer space. That's what it felt like. Yeah, you're like yeah, this is like, yeah this is real. Was it was it a rat concert? It's a rat concert, right? No, a Judas Priest. Oh, of course, Judas Priest. Why did I think it was Rat? Was Rat opening for them? Maybe. Maybe you know the first uh, rock concert <laughs> I ever saw. Was Dio with Dokken? Wow! And um, and I always put Dokken and Rat. I, I feel like they were contemporaries, and I feel like they were very much more New Jersey than they were L.A. Hmm. Although I may be wrong. Rhymes with Rockin'. I saw Rat open for Billy Squire in 1984, and that was with Billy Squire. Was that? It's pre- like Emotions in Motion era. That was pre-ripped. Uh, uh, oh no, tank no! Top. I think it was that was. I think it was "Rock Me Tonight." Probably my girlfriend. That was her, her jam. She really. She was. <clears throat> let me put it. Let me put it. Frankly, she was very sexually attracted to Billy Squire, and she liked. She liked the dancing around in that video. She liked it a lot. I'm. I'm. I'm going here. Uh, I'm going here to Rat, and I see that. Looking at Rat's. Uh, looking just at the search records. It appears that I have already clicked on Rat's Wikipedia entry recently <laughs> enough that it's a different color of purple. <laughs> okay, you uh, tossed out Warren Cucurillo, tossed out George Lynch. Was George Lynch in Doc? Or, you know, I know he's in Dawkins. Was he in um, Rat at one point? Well, so here are the members of Rat. George and Lynch. And this is, this, is, this is what makes me feel like it's a Jersey band. Mm-hmm. Carlos Cavazzo, mm-hmm. Warren Martini. That's the one. Right? Mm-hmm. Warren Martini. Warren I mean, they all... They're all part he of. Pa- the, oh, I think he wait. passed. It does say they're from Los Angeles. That's weird. No, that's got to be. That's got to be a typo. They should be from New Jersey. Well, maybe. Wait, maybe they moved. Maybe they moved. The origins of Rat go back as far as 1973 in Hollywood. So apparently they didn't move. Hmm. Uh, yeah, there's a reason that guy always wears a bandana. Oh, I think he wears the bandana for professional reasons. Is that, is it, well, isn't that true also of the guy from, um, 
who's the guy that has a second career as a reality star with the long blonde hair mm. that always wears a bond- bandana? Oh, oh, Brett, oh, oh Brett Michaels? Uh, Brett, Brett Michaels. He's poison, right? Yeah. That boy is you gotta poison. You got to wonder what's going on under that. Hmm. Oh, man. Dawkins from L.A. too. Hmm. Rhymes with rockin'. Rockin' with Dawkins. Hmm. The guy, the guy from Dawkins, mm-hmm. uh, George Lynch. George Lynch. He had the he had the tips. Remember? Yeah, and that was one of those like lower tier <laughs> B grade metal guitar players that I still liked. Oh, he was great. Paris is burning, breaking the chains. That stuff was great. When I went to see them, he had a sticker on his guitar that said "balls." <laughs> Yes, please. <laughs>